Just a quick note, we recorded this podcast on Thursday morning before both congressmen Dan Kildee and George Santos announced their retirements from their highly competitive districts. That's why we don't discuss them in our segment about House open seats, but we will, of course, touch on those races in a later podcast episode. Welcome to episode 10 of the Inside Elections podcast, where we analyze elections in a nonpartisan, data-driven, and accessible way. In this episode, we'll talk about the fight for the Senate now that Joe Manchin isn't running. We'll talk about the exodus in the House as members announce their exits at an alarming rate. And who will be the next candidate to drop out of the Republican presidential race? Here we go. Hello, I'm Jacob Rubashkin. I'm a reporter and analyst for Inside Elections, and I'll be spending Thanksgiving in New Jersey's 11th district, which is represented by Democrat Mikey Sherrill. I'm Erin Covey. I am also a reporter and analyst for Inside Elections, and I'll be spending Thanksgiving in Texas's 31st district, which is represented by John Carter, and then also Texas's 20th district, which is represented by Joaquin Castro. And I'm Nathan Gonzalez, editor of Inside Elections, and I will not be spending Thanksgiving in any congressional district because I will be here in the District of Columbia, which has no representation in Congress. Still, I'm not sure. Maybe Republicans are are working on that in the House right now, but I'm I'm skeptical. Uh, but, But what are your what is your favorite? The obligatory question is, what is your favorite Thanksgiving food or dish? What is a food but not a dish? <laughs> I don't know. I feel like dish felt very Midwest, so I was running at the food. Yeah, take it wherever you want to go. I, I, I mean, I like all of it. The turkey's the least exciting part, but I'm a sides person. I like pies, pumpkin, apple, pecan. There's not really a Thanksgiving dish that I don't like, unless the turkey's bad. Yeah, I, I, I am a fan of the whole thing together. Um, as well, I think that uh, the we do a sweet potatoes and then kind of topped with marshmallows that get you know a little burnt in the oven, and that's always really tasty. And then one of the most fun things is kind of after we have our big kind of meal, which we do in the middle of the day. At in the evening, we take all of the the turkey carcass and we make a turkey stock, uh, and we have turkey soup. Uh, for dinner that night. So that's always fun as well. And the house smells great. And uh, it's a nice kind of coda to to the whole event. I can't do sweet potatoes for some reason. I, even if you put all the marshmallows on, I, I don't know. I have a mental block, but I'm also a sides. Uh, <laughs> I, 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 the sides, mashed potatoes, give me mashed potatoes and gravy. Um, my wife does this, you know, stuffing. It's not actually in the turkey, but stuffing, but then has uh, dried cranberries and, and fresh apples chopped up in it. And, uh, I'll, I'll take that. I'll take that. Uh, I'll take that any day. So I guess I'm preparing myself to probably eat too much, but that's what, I think that's what you have to do, right? That's, that's our responsibility as Americans, Nathan. (laughs) (laughs) What the pilgrims would have wanted. Um, so before we get to our, our big, our big topics, uh, let's do a few headlines because there a lot has happened since our last episode. Jacob, why don't you kick us off? 
So in Virginia, Democrats maintain control of the state Senate, uh, very narrow control, but but still holding that chamber. And they actually flipped control of the state House of Delegates, uh, despite Republican efforts to win back the Senate and hold the state House, which they had heading into these elections. It was a good night for Democrats who were working to prevent Glenn Youngkin, the Republican governor, from establishing full control over the Commonwealth uh, from the top down. Uh, It could have been even better for Democrats. There were actually a number of races that Republicans won very narrowly, closer races than any of Democrats' victories in the House of Delegates. So, um, you know, uh, obviously a good result for Democrats. They could have won probably another four seats uh, without uh, too much more effort. The upshot here is that Republicans won't be able to pass their 15-week abortion ban, which is something they talked a lot about on the campaign trail. Uh, and Glenn Youngkin will probably uh, not have to run for president now uh, that he wasn't able to win the the important elections in his own state. Uh, in New Jersey, also state legislative elections. Democrats held both chambers there, actually picked up some seats in the state assembly. So not a great night for Republicans at the local level, at least on the East Coast. And and we'll talk about some of the other races as well. But, you know, I think there's a, a tendency to maybe dismiss, well, these were state legislative elections, but there were some definitely some some important messages or lessons that are coming out of those that are going to impact 2024. But uh, Aaron, what do you uh, what should folks not miss? Yeah, so continuing along that train of thought, um, Ohio voters voted to both codify abortion rights and also legalize marijuana. Um, Obviously, neither of these are partisan races, and so it's not one of these races that we were rating and maybe following as closely. But it's really important for 2024 because it kind of affirms Democrats' messaging, particularly on the issue of abortion and that that remains an effective message, even in a state as red as Ohio. Um, and Sherrod Brown, who is one of the most vulnerable senators up for re-election next year, um, is certainly going to be taking some cues, I think, from places where these issues did really well, but maybe Trump won them or Vance won them um, in 2022. And so this is really going to provide a bit of a path to victory for him, I think, in 2024. Yeah, we'll see if uh, whether Ohio turns into H Street, uh, close to where I live, which is just a whole row of pot uh, smoke shops after smoke. One shop. can only hope. Uh, yeah, it is. <laughs> they need it a personality. <laughs> I'm amazed that the market can can uh, uphold the amount of smoke shops we have in our neighborhood. Uh, but also in 2023, uh, Kentucky, uh, Kentucky Democratic Governor Andy Bashir won re-election over Republican State Attorney General Daniel Cameron. Uh, Bashir won uh, with 52.5%, which is a landslide for Democrat for a Democrat in Kentucky. Um, a lot of the same lessons, uh, even in a red state like Kentucky, uh, Democrats used access to abortion as one of their key points uh, against Cameron, that he held, he held a too restrictive view uh, on, on that issue. And so, yeah, Democrats, Democrats had a good night. The Inside Elections podcast is sponsored by George Washington University's Graduate School of Political Management, or GSPM. The GSPM program offers master's degrees in legislative affairs and political management with in-person and online class schedules designed for the working professional. 
Uh, I was thinking back to my days in uh, in the GSPM program and how some of my fellow students use the program as a break from Capitol Hill or a break from the campaign trail. And then when I was, you know, you watch, I was watching the news uh, recently where people are getting into fist fights or threatening to get into fist fights or they they're in the minority and uh, and thinking about considering a, a graduate school program might be an opportunity to escape some things uh, it's still work but it might be uh, an opportunity for a, a new chapter or a fresh chapter uh, for some of you out there so uh, click on the link and check out what the GSPM program has to offer first up, the fight for the U.S. Senate in the wake of Joe Manchin's decision not to run for re-election. After months of deliberation and long conversation with my family, I believe in my heart of hearts that I have accomplished what I set out to do for West Virginia. I have made one of the toughest decisions of my life and decided that I will not be running for re-election to the United States Senate. But what I will be doing is traveling the country and speaking out to see if there is an interest in creating a movement to mobilize the middle and bring Americans together. So that was West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin announcing that he would not seek re-election in what would have been his most difficult and competitive uh, campaign yet. Uh, Manchin has served an elected office in West Virginia for about four decades now and was the last remaining Democrat in the state to hold statewide office. What once had been a, a solidly Democratic state has shifted considerably toward Republicans, is now one of the most Republican states in the country. So he was always going to be an underdog, even if he did run for re-election for the Senate. But by announcing his retirement, not contesting that seat, either, either as a Democrat or as an independent, he effectively cedes control of the West Virginia Senate seat to the Republicans, uh, and that affects the Senate majority math across the map by taking a race that we had seen on the battlefield and moving it into the solid Republican column. And so walk through the, the, the math. Let's walk through the math a little bit more that if, let's consider West Virginia again, that if everything else stays the same. If each party wins all of their races and Republicans win the presidential race, then they still control the Senate because they uh, because a vice president could break tie votes. But if President Biden is reelected, then Republicans need to gain one more seat. They need to get one more. So what is the what are the prospects for uh, for Republicans and how does it change how we're evaluating those races? Well, Republicans have a number of opportunities across the country to flip Senate seats. This is a very vulnerable cycle for Democrats. The top two at this point are Montana and Ohio, Senators John Tester and Sherrod Brown, both running in states that voted for Donald Trump in the last presidential election, will likely vote for the Republican nominee in the next presidential election. They will both have to outrun the top of the ticket by a considerable margin if they want to hold on to their seats. So Republicans are kind of laser focused on those two seats as by far the easiest path to the majority. But there are a half dozen other seats that Democrats are defending that are in pretty marginal states. And depending on how close the presidential election is, a lot of those incumbents, like Bob Casey in Pennsylvania, 
uh, Jackie Rosen in Nevada, Tammy Baldwin in Wisconsin uh, could find themselves in in highly competitive, very close races, uh, as well as that open seat in Michigan, uh, where De- Senator Debbie Stabenow is retiring. You know, all places that on a good night for Republicans could easily swing the other way. And this puts pressure on losing West Virginia, puts pressure on Democrats to try to come up with offensive opportunities or cultivate offensive opportunities to compensate for losses. So Aaron, you've been covering uh, Texas and Florida. What are the real prospects for Democrats to, they would argue they're already on the battlefield. Uh, We have one on, one one off, but what what are Democrats' real prospects in those races right now? Yeah, I think Democrats prospects in Texas are slightly better than they are in Florida, but I think they're both both races are on the edge of the battlefield um, and they could be competitive under the right circumstances. But a lot of that depends on how the presidential race plays out in these states. And you have Texas, which has become kind of slightly more democratic with each presidential cycle over the past decade or so. Um, And so, you know, if Trump wins Texas by just maybe three or four points. He won it by five points last time. I don't think that would be a huge surprise. And that wouldn't be, um, that'll be difficult for a Democratic Senate nominee, probably Colin Allred, to overcome, um, but it's doable. Um, And then in Florida, you kind of have a reverse situation um, where Trump, the presidential race was closer in Florida than it was in Texas in 2020, but the state as a whole has been moving much more Republican pretty rapidly in recent years. Now, it's a little difficult to judge because I think 2022 was such a good cycle for Florida Republicans um, that maybe some Democrats or some Republicans are underestimating the fact that it could be potentially competitive again. And I think um, we've seen that like the Biden campaign seems to still see Florida as a part of the presidential battleground in a way that Texas is not. So, you know, that could potentially bode well for Democrats in the Florida Senate race. Um, But, you know, even though Ted Cruz and Rick Scott, I should mention who these two people are who are up for re-election, they're both polarizing figures, have had some really close races, um, but they're also going to be very well defended going into 2024, I think. Um, You know, when Cruz was on the ballot in 2018, it took Republicans a while to kind of see how competitive this race was. Um, Whereas I think this cycle, Republicans are much more concerned about making sure Cruz is defended. Um, So, you know, could develop into more competitive races. Um, We'll see what happens. Texas looks slightly better right now, but um, it's kind of marginal. So either one of them could be potentially on the battlefield next year. I was amused when Senator Scott uh, tweeted a a cartoon uh, about it was a graveyard <laughs> with the candidates that he has defeated in the past uh, because he was governor for two terms previously before he was elected to the Senate. Uh, the the names of people he has defeated on the, on these tombstones and he has consistently won his races by less I believe two of them by less than one percent one of them maybe slightly more than than one point. I mean we're not talking about landslides, uh, but one of the things one of the challenges for Democrats, along with what you laid out, Aaron, was is the expense, right? Texas and Florida are two of the most expensive places to run races because you have multiple expensive media markets in both areas. So one of the narratives coming out of the mansion announcement was that uh, Republicans were, or Democrats were going to be able to save some money because they would, both parties protect their incumbents at, at, at all costs almost. But how much money do you think do we think they really would have spent in West Virginia that could be transferred to other races? 
So I went back and I looked at how much money they spent in West Virginia in 2018, they being kind of outside Democratic groups, people like the DSCC and the uh, Senate Majority PAC. Um, and what I found was that it was about $18 million that got spent on Joe Manchin's behalf in 2018. Uh, he obviously won that election narrowly. I don't think that they would have necessarily spent that kind of money this time around. I mean, Nathan, you mentioned the the uh, uh, protected incumbents above all else. I think, you know, Doug Jones in Alabama might have something to say about that. Uh, you know, he he was running in a very difficult race in 2020 and got no outside help, really, uh, or, or perhaps very, very marginal. But uh, everyone kind of understood that that race was uh, not one worth putting money into. I think Manchin, they would have treated a little bit differently uh, for a number of reasons. But, um, you know, I think it, it, I'm not sure that those dollars would necessarily be going to Florida and Texas, again, because of the incumbency mandate that those groups have. Um, I, I think it's probably more likely that they would have gone to Ohio and Montana, where there are incumbents who are fighting for reelection. But I, I do think there's some credence to the notion that it it does free up some money that would have otherwise gone to West Virginia, and it certainly clarifies the uh, outline of of the battlefield in a way that allows Democrats, both in D.C. but also donors and activists out in the states, to refocus and and be more efficient in their efforts. Um, but I, I do think the Biden element is interesting, especially in Florida. I think whether or not Florida is competitive is probably much more dependent on whether the Biden campaign invests there than, than Texas. Because I think Colin Allred is going to raise the money to make Texas competitive. Um, you know, we saw Beto raise what then was kind of the, the most money of any Senate campaign ever in 2018 running against Ted Cruz. I think Colin Allred can raise that kind of money. I'm not sure that Debbie McCarcel Powell can raise the kind of money she would need to make Florida competitive on her own. Yeah. And Allred's already outpacing where... Beto was at this point in 2018. So again, you know, it's been six years and Senate races become increasingly more expensive with every cycle. Um, but I think Allred definitely has the ability to do that. And on the flip side, I'm curious with the money situation, Republicans might save money in West Virginia too, because they're not going to have to potentially spend to get Jim Justice through a primary that could have determined how competitive the general election was, right? Right. And Manchin was bringing, what, 10 plus million dollars, I think, cash on hand to uh, yeah. uh, to the table as well. So so you're right. And it's not just a, a not just a net money gain for uh, in reallocation of resources for Democrats that uh, Republicans uh, should not have to spend as much time or energy taking over this seat. I think uh, NRSC chairman Steve Dane said, we what we like our odds in Montana, or sorry, in West Virginia. He's from Montana. We like our odds in West Virginia, which is a very understated way to, uh, to, to look at the race. But And this money game is not, uh, there is a competition between incumbents, right? And that's one of the reasons why uh, in New Jersey, which is uh, not uh, not an open seat where Senator Bob Menendez is both under indictment and planning to run for re-election, uh, but he has a new challenger in the in First Lady Tammy Murphy, who just announced her campaign. Uh, here's a clip from her introductory uh, campaign video. I am so proud of everything we've accomplished, but I know there's a lot more to do, and that's why I'm announcing this. I'm running for the United States Senate because we owe it to our kids to do better. So that was 
Tammy Murphy. Uh, she there was already a challenger to Menendez in the primary with for, with Congressman Andy Kim. Uh, so, Jacob, what do we think this does to the primary? Uh, does it help Menendez at all? And what do we think Andy Kim is going to going to do with this Murphy candidacy? I don't think it helps Menendez at all. I think Menendez is, I said in one of my stories, I think he's in Dallas Cowboys territory in terms of his popularity in New Jersey. He consistently polls in the single digits in this primary. His approval rating among Democrats is in the single digits uh, at the moment. It doesn't matter. One opponent, two opponents, maybe three opponents, because I think there are is at least one other person who's going to get into this race. Uh, maybe if you had 10 opponents to Bob Menendez, you could see him finding a way to sneak through with 12 or 13%. But I don't think that's going to happen. I, I think that uh, Tammy Murphy is a very credible candidate. She brings uh, a lot to the table in terms of her institutional backing, obviously very involved in the state's politics for some time. We've seen her already begin to line up some of those very important county endorsements, right? In New Jersey, it actually does matter. There's a tangible benefit to being endorsed by a county party. You get a preferential placement on the ballot uh, in, in that county. And so the fact that she's been able to lock down support from county leaders, especially in North Jersey, Hudson County, Somerset County, um, you know, that that is uh, that goes a long way for her. Uh, I did think it was interesting. She said in an interview that she was not planning on self-funding her race, her and her husband, Governor Phil Murphy, very wealthy, former Goldman Sachs bankers. Um, they own a, a soccer team in New Jersey. Uh Phil Murphy did self-fund his first run for governor, but she said she has no intention of putting in her own money. Um, you know, I, I think that it uh, it certainly complicates Andy Kim's path. He looked like he was going to romp against Menendez if it was just the two of them in a primary. Now he's got a real credible opponent. I think that the uh, the the other candidate who I think is is in the mix is a woman named Patricia Campos Medina, who is a labor leader in the state. She currently heads up the Worker Institute at the School of Industrial and Labor Relations at my alma mater, Cornell, um, and she is seriously considering a bid. I think I wouldn't be surprised to see her get into that race at some point soon. Uh, will you know she's not a known figure the way that either Murphy or Kim are so whether she can raise money and start to put together some support uh, will go a long way in determining whether this uh, becomes a, a four-person race or or stays the three-person race that it looks like right now and what are the chances I'm, I'm looking I believe the filing deadline is in early April uh, for New Jersey what are the chances that Kim ultimately decides to run for re-election I mean, I don't know. I, I guess he, he could do it, but right now he's ahead in polling. He's raising a ton of money. He, you know, I think that there's some latent frustration at him for announcing his bid so early, especially before the Virginia, excuse me, the Virginia, the New Jersey legislative <laughs> elections, before the Virginia legislative elections too, but the, the New Jersey legislative elections were concluded. You know, I think that there's always kind of a tension between candidates who announce their bids for higher office. Uh, when the local folks are still trying to raise money and, and get out the vote for their own races. Um, I think the circumstances of the primary would have to shift considerably for Andy Kim to feel like he couldn't win and had to drop back down to his house seat. 
Well, Manchin's uh, announcement was not the only retirement announcement last week. Actually, the same day that he announced uh, that he wasn't running, three House members announced that they weren't returning to Congress. Uh, One of them is Brad Winstrup, a Republican from Ohio. Uh, Here's a clip of uh, of his video making that decision. Sadly, all too often, the frantic pace of Washington has kept me away from our home. I'm ready to change that. So I want you to hear it from me first. I'll be retiring from Congress at the end of next year. I'm just a fortunate guy who's been blessed with a wonderful wife and two loving children under the age of 11. I'm blessed with good health, and I look forward to fighting for truth, justice, and the American way in whatever I do in the future. The holiday season is here, which also means it is retirement announcement season in Congress. We had three House retirements back-to-back last Thursday after Manchin announced that he wasn't running for re-election either. The list includes Brad Winstrup, who you just heard, Derek Kilmer, and Brian Higgins. And then um, a couple days later, Texas Rep Michael Burgess also announced that he was not running for re-election. So did Pat Fallon, um, but then Fallon changed his mind a couple days later and is now actually running for re-election. So we've had... um, four House retirements in the past week. There were several the week before. um, And I think before we've made this point that it seemed like there were fewer open seats this cycle. I think we're still under the average number of open seats, um, but there is still a lot of time before these filing deadlines approach and more members could choose to head for the exits. So when I read through the Fallon the Fallon saga, it sounded like he said, I want to leave to spend more time with my family. And then it sounded like his family was like, eh, actually, why don't you run, why don't you run again? <laughs> well, he wasn't or, actually, you're, you're well, good. I guess. You're, you're good. Well, or he was going to run for the legislature, the state legislature, right. in order to be closer to his family. But it sounded like his family was still encouraging him to, to return to Congress. So I, I don't know. I just, yeah. I got a kick out of I got to kick it out of that. So were were there any, except for the surprise about him, uh, Fallon, announcing not running and then running, uh, were there any surprises in this batch to to either of you? I think Kilmer's retirement was the only real surprise um, just from talking to folks in the region. I don't think anyone saw this coming. He's relatively young. He's 49 years old. He's been involved in a lot of work. Um, to kind of modernize and restructure Congress. Um, So like a lot of institutional kind of work that I think made folks surprised that he was heading for the exits this early. He has been around um, for around a decade or so. But he's still young. He's still, um, he's not. But yeah, he's he's young. As opposed to like Higgins, Winstrup, Burgess, they're all in their 60s and 70s, which is about the median age in Congress these days, um, but, you know, on the older side. So it makes sense that these are folks who are, you know, when they say they're retiring, they're, they might actually be retiring um, and taking some time off work. Whereas Kilmer, you know, could have a whole nother career ahead of him. Um, so, yeah, I think Kilmer's was probably the only surprise. But, you know, I'm anticipating there are still quite a few other members who are kind of still on retirement watch right now because of their age or other reasons who could announce in the coming weeks. Higgins did surprise me, I think, especially because he's leaving early. Uh, He is going to resign in February to take a job as the president of the Shea Performing Arts Center in Buffalo, where he's from. Um, You know, I think that it's a... uh, it's an indicator of how much or how little members like being in the House right now that we're seeing a number of these retirements, especially when it comes to resignations. It, you know, 
he could have waited the extra couple months to finish out his term and then take a new job. But I think uh, clearly he wants to leave now. Um, well, not now, but in in February. I, I did look up. Uh, he'll be he'll be getting a pay increase, which I'm sure is is meaningful to him. I, I pulled up the Shea Performing Arts Center's 990s, and they make a little bit more than than your average congressman. Uh, but I, I think that it's it's um, it, you know we see this a lot. Members in the minority head for the exits early. Uh, and what I find interesting about a lot of these retirements is that it's not just that this time. It's also members of the majority who are headed out, um, perhaps uh, not necessarily at the tail end of their career, thinking about like Debbie Lesko, who we've already talked about before, who um, is is uh, retiring at the end of this term. Um, you know, uh, Ken Buck, I know, is a little older, but still hasn't been in Congress all that long. I think it's, you know, Pat Fallon, who very nearly ran for the Texas State Senate rather than uh, go, come back to Congress. I mean, he's been there since, uh, what, like 2018? I think he's a very recent member. Um, yeah. You know, I, I I think it's it's clear that people don't like being there right now. I mean, there are fist fights on in the hallways and kidney um, punches or not ki- kidney punches. I mean, this is kid- brutal. Kidney punches. I saw Mark Wayne Mullen tossed Tim Burchett out of his uh, workout group. Um, you know, th- th- it's really uh, funny coming from Mark Wayne there. Mullen. <laughs> 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 he literally was- just like tried to threaten someone to a fight. Yeah, I think it was because, you know, if Burchett had actually, you know, gone up and hit McCarthy, maybe he would have been allowed back in the group. But um <laughs> I I I just think there's something to uh, Congress being a miserable place right now that I wouldn't be surprised if we see a number more of retirements uh, coming out of Thanksgiving and and the the winter break. Right, and I think one of the one of the things to watch is the timing. I mean, we just had a flurry of kind of Texas activity. Um, Kay Granger, Republican, longtime Republican congresswoman, announced a couple of weeks ago that she wasn't running and now Texas. And it's part of the reason is because the Texas filing deadline is coming up in mid-December. Uh, right. So I pulled up, uh, thanks to, I'm looking off the Daily Coast Elections uh, spreadsheet, which is very helpful. Um, California is in December as well. Uh, Ohio, uh, then in, er- in early January, Kentucky, we already had an announcement that longtime Congressman Hal Rogers, the Republican, is announcing he's running for, I think it's a 23rd term. Uh, and so that one of the reasons why we're seeing that the timing is not just part of it's because of holidays and spending time with family, but it's also when do they have to make a decision about whether they're whether they're running or not. So those are some states yeah. to, to watch in the coming in the coming weeks. Do y'all think McCarthy's going to run for re-election? I don't know. (laughs) Long, long pauses aren't great on podcasts. Uh, I'm going to say, I don't don't have any insider intelligence on this one. I'm going to say that he's going to run again. But yeah, I, I think that he probably still wants to be speaker. I, I am my my the situation i'm most curious about is like if republicans have a good night in the house next year and they put together a bigger majority than the one they have now does mccarthy try and make a comeback you know what what is the what is what is mike johnson's position in the party come next year is he still speaker you know is is he 
kind of the consensus leader of the party or is there an opportunity for a McCarthy type figure if if that kind of troublemaking eight member contingent is either not as strong or uh, because they aren't there as many of them or you know there are just more votes to spare uh, does McCarthy try and make a move to come back to power um, and I don't know I'd also, we, we should mention Abigail Spanberger too, the Democrat from Virginia, also not running for reelection uh, next year to focus on a, a campaign for governor. So, Which was not a surprise. Yeah, she it was, was reported a couple of months ago. She was telegraphing that, uh, telegraphing that. Uh, before, we, before we move on, uh, how many of these retirement announcements do we think impact the fight for the majority or they are taking place in competitive districts? I don't think any of them will impact the fight for the majority, at least any of the recent ones. The only two really competitive open seats we have so far are um, Michigan's 7th District, which is held by Alyssa Slotkin, who's running for Senate, and California's 47th District, which is held by Katie Porter, who is also running for Senate. And those are really the only two um, that are kind of battleground House seats. There's a couple of these districts that are kind of on the border between like maybe solid and likely that if there is a shift in the national environment could become competitive under the right circumstances. But for now, these are mostly going to be... um, races to watch where you're going to want to focus on the primary battles. Right. Cause the primary will effectively be choosing the next member of Congress. Um, and the right. Spanberger seat is sort of in between. It could be competitive, right? I mean, it's, 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 it's yeah. between, it's not as competitive as the, those toss up races that you mentioned, but also it, there are, it's not solid for Democrats and Democrats are going to have to go through a, a primary there. Uh, but let's, let's move on. And finally, let's chat about the presidential race, because in our last episode, both of you uh, foreshadowed Senator Tim Scott's exit from the race. So I feel like I owe it to our our listeners to ask you who's going to be who's going to drop out next. Asa Hutchinson. Yeah, it's got to be Hutchinson. (laughs) Burgum? Is Burgum still running? Is he still in the race? The governor of North Dakota? Yeah, he's still kicking. He still has more money to spend, though, like that he can't spend. (laughs) I think Hutchinson's in a more immediately kind of dire position. Um, But yeah, who knows? I don't think, you know, DeSantis and Haley certainly aren't dropping out anytime, like soon, soon. Um, I don't think Ramaswamy is either, but, you know, or Christie. I'm not really sure where his head's at at all. I think all of them have kind of reasons not to, you know, Ramaswamy has a lot of money and he clearly relishes the attention and the ability to get up on stage and berate all of these people to his heart's desire. Chris Christie is running a really lean campaign. I mean, he's not really spending any money. Um, He is relying mostly on earned media. He has a donor base that is at least uh, propped up by, to some degree, Democratic donors who continue to give him money so that he can get on the debate stage. I think he'll stay in past New Hampshire, at least. And then, you know, Burgum has money. Uh, I, I, I wouldn't be surprised if Burgum drops out at some point. I don't know when the North Dakota filing deadline is, Nathan, if you've got that in front of you. But um, April 8th. Okay, so he's got plenty of time time. to decide if he wants to run for governor again. I don't know. I mean, you know, these guys don't get as rich as they are by spending money on lost causes. 
Uh, so I wouldn't be surprised if Burgum takes a bow at some point, maybe if he doesn't make the next debate. Um, but I think Burgum and Hutchinson kind of are in their own category. And then after that, you know, all, all these people could stick around for uh, a little while, certainly through New Hampshire. Yeah. yeah. I, I'm not convinced DeSantis is going to go all the way to Iowa. And I know that he is he is relatively even with Haley now, but I feel like there are two trains headed in the passing each other going in, in different directions. And you asked, uh, I think, Jacob, you asked me last episode, you know, make the case for DeSantis dropping out. And I did not do it uh, artfully at all. But I think it was it would be to save embarrassment. I mean, if he's just going to get if he's just going to get routed by Trump, uh, then I think that would be an incentive to just say, Hey, just, <laughs> just bow out before that, before that happens. But, uh, I, I have been, I've been wrong before, although I have been telling people for months that I was skeptical that Manchin, uh, was going to run for reelection. And, and so that ended up being, I ended up being right, uh, every once in a while. And finally, our last segment is Look What I Found, uh, where we talk about anything. It could be politics, but it could be sports, pop culture, anything you want. You never know what you're going to get. So, Aaron, what did you find this time? So I don't think I've mentioned this on the podcast before because I had started reading it like a year ago and then put it back down and haven't really picked it up since. But with all of the um, news coming out of Congress recently, I thought I would recommend The Field of Blood, which is a book about pre-Civil War Congress um, and just kind of all of the violent incidents that were becoming increasingly common in that era. Um, it wasn't just the caning of Charles Sumner, but it's, yeah, it's it's a really interesting read. Um, I didn't put it down because I was bored with it. It's because I have a short attention span and I need to get back to it. Um, but yeah, I would recommend it. Maybe not for your children, Nathan. I know you're always looking for bedtime reading, you but know it's, a, it's a little dark. In a weird way, that almost sounds up my uh, up their alley. <laughs> like they love <laughs> war, war yeah. history, military history, whether it's Civil War, World War II. Like they love it. So I, it might be too graphic, uh, but it's closer to <laughs> it's closer to their to their lane than what you might than what you might think. Yeah, I think saw Mark Wayne Mullen carrying a copy of that around the hill when I was up there the other day. Wait, are you serious? <laughs> No. Oh my God. I, wouldn't, I wouldn't doubt it. <laughs> Someone should send him a copy. Uh, Jacob, what did, what did you find? So uh, this is not something that I found recently, but uh, it's something that I find every week. Uh, so I want to give a shout out to the folks at Cucina Alvolo at the DuPont Circle Farmer's Market. They're an Italian restaurant. They make and sell fresh pasta. And it's always like one of the highlights of my week to figure out what kind of fresh pasta I'm going to buy and then what uh, recipe I'm going to make with it uh, to start my week off. It's a, it's a very nice uh, way to start a Monday or Tuesday with some fresh pasta. Yeah. And uh, I found that I have a Nate Bargetsy problem. Uh, you might remember <laughs> that uh, he's a comedian that I mentioned a few a few episodes ago. Uh, I try to listen to the Nate Land podcast. If you think this podcast is too long, that one, they usually run two hours uh, on theirs. But since that <laughs> since that time that I, I mentioned him, he's been on Saturday. He hosted Saturday Night Live. If you haven't seen his uh, George Washington sketch, uh, call it up. Call it up on YouTube. I think it's going to be a classic. But in February, he's coming to DC to the Capital One Arena. I don't have tickets yet. Probably a pretty safe bet that I'm going to end up there. Uh, so I don't know. It's, he seems like a he seems like a good guy, and and it's uh, if 
if clean comedy, if you don't, if that's if that's something you're you're looking for, that's sort of his that's sort of his lane. But I don't know. Did either of you see the Saturday Night Live? Any of the the skits out of that? I saw the George Washington one. It was funny. Okay, okay. so it's no. not just dad humor. Like it, it can it has a broader it has <laughs> it's a broader not, appeal. Not dad humor. <laughs> I would I would argue that dad humor has broad appeal. There we go. <laughs> all right, I don't feel I don't feel too old. That's all the time we have. We discussed the fight for the Senate after Joe Manchin's exit and a slew of House retirements. Thank you for joining us. At Inside Elections, we provide nonpartisan analysis of congressional, presidential, and gubernatorial races. With a combination of reporting and data, we break down the key races and bring valuable context to complex elections. Please go to InsideElections.com to subscribe to the bi-weekly newsletter. We have individual subscriptions as well as group packages that are tailor-made for association or corporate packs. If you like today's episode, please do all the things that help us out. Click the thumbs up button on YouTube. Leave us a review. Leave us a message. Uh, if you didn't like today's episode, please email George Santos. We also want to thank our producers, Alan Tazinski and Melissa Lenner of Pretty Easy Podcasts and our associate producer, Conrad Tolosa. Please come back and join us again next time.